if you're not familiar with the scripture, we do provide Bibles right there in the pew, and we're going to be on page 200, or excuse me, 1220, 1220, or the scripture is listed in the handout you got at the bottom, and we'll be going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, and of course I'll be bringing other scriptures in as we go along. That's page 1220 in the Pew Bible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much this morning for bringing us here together. And Lord, we're here this morning, as we are every Sunday, to worship you. This Sunday, Lord, is the first Sunday before we celebrate the birth of Christ. And I pray, Lord, today that as we look at the scriptures, you would again astonish us by how deep your love has been to humanity. And I pray that we would see that today more than ever. And I pray that it would change us, it would draw us to Christ, it would make us more faithful to serve him with the time, short time we have on this earth. Because we know we're going to be spending, those who know Christ, with, with you in eternity. And that's going to be a blessed, joyful time as we serve you and worship with you in all eternity. So thank you, Lord, for today. Bless us with listening ears and a receptive heart. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, what a blessed time of year is the Christmas season. Excitement fills the air. People are talking about meeting with family, friends, enjoying their favorite foods. People are chatting about giving gifts, about time off from work and school. And often in all that commotion, there exists kind of a societal confusion, misinformation. The catchword of 2018 is fake news. Fake news about Christ, what he came to do and who he was. While there is no facts proving the reality of Santa Claus, elves, reindeer, or anything like these, every year they are all presented as realities. Yet on a silent night in Bethlehem, it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, in the city of David there was born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So this news that we find in the, in the Word of God is, histor- is a historical fact. It is a prophetic fact. It is a scriptural fact. And still, each year, it is buried under a pile of fake news and its message purposely obscured. Now, you see signs in stores and on bumper stickers that read Xmas. And then you see people respond to these signs by saying we ought to put Christ back into Christmas as a substitution for the letter X for the name of Christ. What they may not know, though, because it's not knowledge readily available, it is that the idea of X is actually an abbreviation for the name Christ. 
which really came into use in our culture with no intent to show any disrespect to Jesus. In fact, the first letter of the Greek word Christos is translated in our alphabet as an X. It is the first letter in the Greek name for Christ, which is Christu. So X has come through church history to be a shorthand symbol for the name of Christ and has a long sacred history. Now, you also notice that people have on the back of their cars symbols of a fish. You know, sometimes those fish are eating Darwin theology or Darwin uh, whatever uh, theory and, and, and stuff like that. But, you know, the church has used that symbol of fish historically because it's an acronym. Fish in Greek is ictus, right, where it, it involved the use of the first letter of the Greek phrase, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. So the early Christians would take the first letter of those words and put those letters together to spell the Greek word fish, which the first one would be Iesu, would be an iota in the Greek, and then an X would be for Christu, for Christ. So that's how the symbol fish actually became the universal symbol of Christendom. Historically, the use of X to symbolize the name of Christ from its origin has meant no disrespect. However, that doesn't mean that when people of our day use the word or the letter X, some do intend to X out Christ from the holiday and from everything else and use it in a derogatory manner. Now, in the midst of all this confusion of this holiday season, let's instead get lost in the facts of the astonishing things about God's love. Three astonishing things about God's love I want to bring to your attention from 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. And the first astonishing thing is that God's love is astonishing because God took the initiative to secure the salvation of sinners. In verse number 9, it says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, 1 John 4, 9, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world. So by the term world is meant the world of mankind indefinitely ruined by Adam's sin. Everybody born in the world is a sinner because it's transmitted from Adam and they will have their own sins that they will commit. So if you are spiritually alert, you must conclude that God is active in salvation. In other words, God actually goes out after us and seeks after us. He is not a God who can be persuaded by our lives and actions into forgiving us because there was some good thing in us, but a God whose love is actually so great that he only forgives not only forgives, but he persuades us to be forgiven because he gives us the message on how to be forgiven. So if salvation is just something we earn, there's no incentive to 
lift up our voices to praise God for his wonderful love and so great salvation. However, if salvation is entirely the result of something God has done, well then, praise and wonder must be a part of the astonishment of the saints who lift up praises to God for the great things that he has done for so great and magnificent a salvation he has delivered unto humanity. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it declares that if someone rejects the salvation that is offered to them, in the Heavenly Father's incentive to send the only one fit for such a mission, which is Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was the one nominated and appointed by the Father to be the Savior of the world. That was his mission. If a person rejects that, then glad tidings become bad tidings. For Hebrews says that by way of a question, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, the answer to that question is there is no escape if you neglect what the Father has offered in his love to humanity. So you see, when Jesus showed up on the earth, that is when God's love appeared in visible form. It says in Titus chapter 3, it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. In other words, he brought that message of the prophets to the world. And now that message is preached to all who will listen. So by God's initiation, he brought salvation to the world. Even when it came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, God initiated the announcement to Mary by the angel Gabriel, by God's promised plan of salvation. And what did the angel say? Well, it said, Mary, uh, the angel said to Mary that you're going to be uh, bear a child. And of course, what was her response? It was this, when Gabriel brought the message to her. And Mary says to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Mary's question, how I'm a virgin, I've never known a man. Her question is not a question of doubt, but a question of wonder and design. Mary is asking about the mechanics. How is this going to work? How can such an impossible thing be fulfilled? Something like this has never, ever happened before. This is unheard of. No one's going to believe this. Also, historically, remember, people were not familiar when Jesus came. They were not familiar with hearing from God. Since, not since Malachi, the prophet, that was the last prophet of the Old Testament, did God... God's message come to the people. In fact, God did not speak through a prophet for 400 years after Malachi, not until John the baptizer, when the religious world was filled with hypocrisy and spiritual lethargy. So she was, Mary, along with everyone else, unaccustomed to supernatural appearances and miraculous promises the wonder of God was absent from the general population. However, 
it pointed to God doing something entirely new, and Mary was sensing it. In fact, people were sensing something was going on. Her question was stuck in the realm of human reasoning. How did Gabriel answer her? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. So God initiated Jesus' virgin birth. Mary will conceive without an earthly father. The Holy Spirit will overshadow her. That means surround and influence her. Mary's womb with a creative power to produce a special child. The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ as a man is entirely the work of God. We had nothing to do with it. If we did, we'd mess it up. He was not born of the will of man nor of the energy of the flesh. The male human being did not enter into question the question of conception. The man is put on one side. He has nothing to do with it. And it emphasized that that actually emphasizes the total inability of man to bring about his own salvation. So the initiative has to be entirely of God, entirely the plan of God to rescue people from their sin. So Jesus will be conceived without sin. Unlike any other child, Jesus was wholly separated from any sin and by nature the Son of God. The operation of the Holy Spirit was done in such a way that this human nature that the Son took unto himself was sinless, free from pollution, entirely free from the effects and the result of Adam's fall. So he was like no other human being. He was like no one else, and the reason why he was like no one else is because he was the one who could save us because he was like no one else. So Jesus' incarnation was so unusual, so exceptional, so miraculous, so mysterious, it was like anything ever heard of. In fact, the Gospel of John says, chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But everything about the Lord is mysterious. His coming into the world is mysterious. His going out of the world is mysterious. He did not enter life like anyone else. He did not go out like anyone else. The resurrection was un as unique as the virgin birth. Everything about him is exceptional from beginning to the end. According to God's plan and design, it was done. For nothing will be impossible with God, it says in Luke 1, 37. So the answer to Mary's design problem was God is the designer. Don't worry about it. Now, let's realize and remember that it all happened so that we might be saved, so that our sins might be forgiven. The Son of God became man that the children of men may become children of God. For again it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of God. It was God's will that initiated and accomplished and planned salvation. So God was pleased to send his son to assume our nature and die for our many sins. The giving of the Redeemer was the work of God's free mercy. Instead of God giving the sinner what he deserved, God gave Jesus what he doesn't deserve, and that's the punishment of our sin. For it says in Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that he, we may become the righteousness of God in him. Nothing moved God to do this but his own love, his astonishing love. The point being that the story of salvation is not the story of God waiting for us to do something, waiting for us to repent and to turn to him and do good works. Neither it is, is, is it just the story of God responding to what we have done and rewarding us by parting pardoning us, or forgiving us. See, God is active, who actually goes out after us. It was God who sent his son to work out this great salvation. It was God the Father that sent his willing son to the cross. It was God who raised him from the dead. It was God who does everything. All of it is of God. So at the bottom of all of that is God's amazing love. For Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of all acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then he says this, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul the apostle saying, I'm the worst of the sinners because I persecuted the church. And I was cohort to people's beatings, imprisonment, and murder. So I am a sinner, but Christ saves me. So if we ask the question, why does he love us? We would have no answer but because. Because he loved us. It was the same reason given to Moses concerning God's choice of the nation of Israel. God said to Moses, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the people. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which was swore to your forefathers. So if you are a believer in Christ today, the answer to the question in short, why does God love you? He loves you because he loves you, because that's who he is. He demonstrates his love towards you because of who he is. So the first reason for the astonishing love of God is because God, God's initiative in saving sinners. That leads me to the second reason, and it's because God's love is astonishing because of the extent he went to bring life to dead sinners. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 9, it says, For this, the love of God was manifest in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. This love shows up 
in all those who respond positively to the demonstration of God's love by believing in the Son. So through faith in Christ, life has come to us through Jesus Christ, and then the love of God is manifested in us once we come to Christ. So this is eternal life, it says in the Gospel of John, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So life, real life, eternal life, spiritual life involves knowing and having Jesus Christ himself for life is all tied up in him and in him alone. How spiritually dead are human beings? At least spiritually. We're walking around, but we were born into this world spiritually dead. So spiritually dead that, as our text says, humans are not suited to naturally love God. It says in verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. See, the notion to think that you and I have The ability to love God on our own is flatly a lie. It could not have ever entered our heart or have the ability to love God on our own or have the desire to do it. Only by God's grace could you or I have imagined to ask that the eternal Son of God should assume our flesh and be made sin and a curse for us. We just would have never conceived it in our own spiritually dead and darkened minds. We would never have done it if God didn't take the initiative, if God didn't go to the, to the extent he went to give us life. So then when a person is made spiritually alive, they quickly come to know that God loves them. And the first And greatest way the love of God becomes wonderfully known to the redeemed sinner is the cross. How astonishing is God's love? Let me answer that with Scripture. It says in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Think of it for a moment. The God you and I defied. The God you have ignored and disobeyed not only has not damned and destroyed us, but actually has sent his only begotten son to die for you and me and redeem us, buy us back and save us and forgive us. See, the way of salvation The way of heaven has been opened to us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How astonishing is that? The Lord had visited this earth and has provided everything needed to redeem his people. That is, all those who would come and believe in him. The love of God is made as conspicuous as the light by the death of Jesus Christ. For the Bible says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. That's how we know love. However, 
there is something else that we must become very aware of when we are reading Scripture. There are unworthiness that the Son of God should become human and die for our sakes. Well, I like how the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says it. He says, for one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. Now, I've read many books on military special forces in the past several years. I've come to notice a common thread that runs through those books. It is the camaraderie, it's the loyalty, it's the brotherhood that exists among these men. They develop a deep respect and love for each other, a closeness to each other. Several, several of the books quoted the passage of Scripture several times, almost, almost every book did in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. All of them have answered this question. Would I give my life for the guy standing next to me, for the guy in the foxhole with me? Would I make the ultimate sacrifice for my noble comrades? If it came down to it, would I take the bullet for my fellow brother? They all answered. In the affirmative, they all said I would do it. Many who have gone downrange, that means they went and into battle and they died, have paid the ultimate price for their brothers in arms. They took the bullet and gave their life. But if they were to be asked this question, would you lay down your life for the enemy? For the Taliban? For Al-Qaeda, for ISIS, for the IAG, which is the Islamic Army Group, a terrorist organization capable of training soldiers that would kill American soldiers, the answer would be no way. Their life is not worth giving my life. That's not why I'm in this. See, the point being that the case is rare that one should die for another, even if he or she was a good and righteous person. It is for the most part non-existent that one would willingly give his life for an enemy. But here is where the love of God takes on an astonishment of its own and is equaled to no other. The de demonstration of God's mercy toward towered, actually towered above the proportion that any friendly person could have ever displayed that God sent his son to die in the place not of those who were good or just, but for those who were not good, those who were unjust, those who were wicked, those who were ungodly, those who were, who were haters of God, for those who were all in a damnable state, he sent his son to die for us sinners to rescue and free us from eternal death and to make us partakers 
of eternal life. What does it say in Scripture in First in Romans 5a? But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, Christ's love is goes to a level that no human being has ever come close to. And you can't talk about Christ's birth without talking about his death, and you can't talk about his death without talking about his resurrection, and you can't even talk about his resurrection without talking about his ascension and his intercession and his coming back again. Jesus is coming back again. He's going to, this heaven and earth is going to pass away, and there's going to be a new heaven and earth where righteousness dwells, and we're going to be with him. All those who know Christ will be with him. So secondly, God's love is astonishing because of the extent he went to save sinners and give them life, an extent that no human being from Adam to the last person who dies could have ever accomplished. And then lastly, God's love is astonishing because he spared no cost to save lost sinners. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Big word, but it just means sacrifice. See, love is always to be understood in terms of God's love for us, never in terms of our love for God. That means love does not originate in man, never, it never has, it never will. We only could love God once we understand his love towards us. And notice how striking God's action is here in this passage. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God, again, initiating the actions to send his son an atoning sacrifice with no immediate return, with no reciprocity at all. See, the Lord God knew when he sent his son, it would be for an atoning sacrifice, for sin that his sacrifice would need to go beyond where any sacrifice had gone before. We don't live in a world that understands the reality or significance of the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. Yet sacrifice is what the word of God means. He sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, a sacrifice On our behalf, so this means that Jesus is not just acting like a high priest to offer up sacrifices of animals on the altar before God in behalf of the people. In fact, the Greek word halisterion, or mercy seat, came to denote not only the mercy seat or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies, but also the propitiation or the reconciliation by the shedding of blood that on the day of atonement, the high priest carried the blood of the sacrifice he offered for, all, for himself and then for all the people and then went inside the veil once a year and it sprinkled it on the mercy seat and he made propitiation for the people's sin for that year. And there's something much more that Christ did. Christ is not only the high priest, the one making the offering, he is the offering which makes it completely different than any other offering that went before him. In 1 John chapter 2, it tells us that 
And he himself is the propitiation for our sin, that God the Father sent Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice to remove the guilt that we had incurred because of our sins so that we may have eternal life, that Jesus Christ, his death paid for our sins and satisfied God's judgment on sin. In other words, that all who come to Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior, two things, two fundamental things happen right away. The removal of guilt because of their sin, that means they're cleansed and forgiven by God, and then secondly, the removal of God's anger toward that sinner, appeasing God's wrath, that the death of Christ totally satisfy God's justice, his righteousness, and his holy hatred of sin. So in giving his son, God paid the greatest debt by paying the ultimate cost. Brethren, I hope and I pray that you never get bored of hearing about the true news about Christmas, of the old rugged cross, and the love our Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated there on Calvary's hill for those who confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they know this when they read the Word of God. Their sins are forgiven, that all offenses are removed, that reconciliation to God is made, that they possess now eternal life, they become partakers of the divine nature, they're born of God, they pass out of condemnation into life. Oh, what a blessed state it is to be actually saved and know it, to be delivered from the wrath of God. So may this message never be commonplace, but every time you think of how God saved you, if you are saved, you must think about the amazement of God's love, and then you would rejoice. So lastly, God's love is astonishing because he spared no cost to save sinners, he gave his own life in behalf of those who don't deserve it. So if you have not yet come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you should. For sure, the invitation is what Jesus did on the cross is applicable to any person who comes to him for salvation. And I pray for those this day who do not believe that today you may come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that he may become your advocate before the Father, that you would come to know what Jesus has actually done and how he receives sinners. So friends, Jesus is willing to take you just as you are. You don't have to go back and change anything. That's the whole point. You can't. He wants to wash you. He wants to make you whiter than snow. So that is the great promise and the effect of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why he came into the world. And I would like to ask you today, my friends, has this wonderful person been born in your heart? Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Has that happened to you? 
Christ is the king of the kingdom. And he has emphatically said and communicated to us that you can in no wise enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again, born anew, born from above, born into God's family. Have you been born into God's family? That's my question to you. A conversation with a young man went like this. Young man, do you know you're born from above? And the young man replies, well, I don't know if I have or I haven't. The next question is this. Have you ever been born physically? And he said, of course, I've been born physically. I know that. Then the man said to him, young man, my friend, if, if you had been born again, you would know that as well. You would know that you're in God's family, and you would know that you came to believe in Jesus Christ, and after you believed in him, turned from your sin and received him, your life changed. Because he did that. Because salvation is not about you or what we could do. It's about what Christ has done, and that we receive it as a free gift. So I ask you again, on this Sunday before Christmas Day, a day that we are celebrating the birth of a of our Savior, has he been born in your heart? I would urge you to humble yourself, to acknowledge your sin, to look to Jesus, the Savior, and invite him to come and be born in you, to cleanse you, to forgive you, to transform you, that if you don't look to Jesus, you are still lost. That's the bottom line. You're without him. You're not in his family. You have no hope. And my friends, when you leave this world and leap out into eternity, you will not be with Christ. It will not be a pleasant experience. So where will you be? With Christ in heaven or consigned forever to a punishment the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire? Remember what Scripture tells us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever, everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But then he went on to say this, the, the apostle John, in the next couple of verses, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So our inability to please God by ourselves means that the real change of Christian conversion must involve relying on Christ alone which is the Father's provision to sinful humanity. So yes, Jesus bears the name he well deserves and no one else, the Savior. Now, if you are in a place in your life that you realize that you have not come and believed in Jesus Christ, well, today's the day to do it. This is what you must do. This is what the Bible says. It says you have to repent of your sin. Repent, and it says, and believe the gospel. Repent means to turn away from 
the many individual sins by which you have offended God's character and broken his law. Turn away from any attempt, whatever, to try to justify yourself before God by appealing to your own orthodox beliefs or your own acceptable behavior or morality. And then to turn to God, to look to him to pardon your sin, to give you a right standing before him, and to bring you into his family and then have fellowship with him. So you need to turn and believe in Christ, but you also need to believe. Believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Leave everything alone and, and come to Christ alone. See, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. True saving faith always responds with obedience. Lord, what you say, I will do. So repentance and belief means to trust Jesus as God's appointed provision for the forgiveness of your sins. It also means to trust Jesus to keep you in this saving belief until he takes you all the way to heaven where faith will become sight. We will drop off these old, decaying, aching bodies, and we will have resurrected bodies. That is the promise of Scripture. So where do you stand today? Is Christ born in your heart? Are you in the family of God? Have you come to a place in your, in your life that you actually believed and trusted in Christ alone and then followed him? left your sinful life behind and followed him, opened up the Bible and started reading it and studying it because the Bible's a big book, but God, this is the mind and the will of God. When we find out what's in it, it sets you free. There's no fake news in Scripture. It's all real, and it's true, and it's eternal, and it'll never pass away because it comes from the very character and nature of God. So this morning, if you are a believer, praise God. Continue to live for him with your whole heart, with all your mind, with your soul, with all your strength, every day, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Serve God. And don't worry about your death. He'll take you when he's done. All right? You just serve him with all you got. So, yes, the love of God is truly astonishing. You have all a joyful a joy-filled holiday, and have a a Christ-centered new year. You can, in 2019, have a Christ-centered new year. Come to Christ today if you don't know him. If you do know him, continue to serve him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the incredible love that you demonstrated on the cross. Thank you, Father, for sending the Son Thank you, Lord Jesus, for accomplishing everything that the Father gave you to do. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that now you make all that alive for us. You make it, you weld it upon our hearts and our minds. You keep us from falling away from it. Thank you. Lord, if someone doesn't know you today, I pray they would come. Speak with me. I'd be able to share with them from the Word of God how they can know Christ as their Lord and Savior and be saved today. And for all those who believe in you, that you just bless them exceedingly this year, Lord, with your, the sense of your presence, 
with a further knowledge of the Word of God and of a deep fellowship with Christ. And I pray this in your name. Amen.